Good morning. You know, I made the realization this morning, I've been here now for about six years, and I've gotten to preach maybe five or six sermons, and I believe this is my third sermon on daylight savings. And I thought it was random at first, and then I realized Pastor Stan is a genius. So... Our scripture is Mark 6, 30 through 44. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take more than a half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. And he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. This is the word of the Lord. Came to a realization the other day. I think there's an unwritten rule of nature that bad things happen more often on times that are very important in our life than just on random days. We never get the flat tire on our day off. It's always on the way to the job interview, uh, or in my case, on the way to the summer retreat to Westminster Woods last year. Uh, We tend to have things go wrong in the most important of times. I got to experience this uh, a little bit this week on Monday we had the joy of replacing our sewer line of our house. Um, And that is a big, messy job. In fact, our backyard is a wasteland right now. And of course, this happens to come on the week that I'm preaching for services, uh, that our childcare is off vacationing in Arizona. Uh, and it just seems like sometimes, as much as we try to plan out our time, things can unravel very quickly. In fact, I, I heard about a story that took place in the early 1990s in the capital city of Bosnia, 
Sarajevo, there was a young couple who were getting married. Um, the, the names were uh, Milan, who was a fourth-year seminary student, and his bride-to-be, Dejina, um, were getting married in about 1992, and they, uh, the wedding went very well. It was a beautiful ceremony. And then according to the tradition of that location, they were to parade to the reception, and while they were walking, they would wave flags. And in this scenario, they're waving the Serbian flag. Well, if you know... Um, about that time, that there was a lot of ethnic tensions going on in that region. In fact, it, was, uh, it came to a head so much that one particular person saw those flags and, and thought that was a sign of hostility and opened fire on this wedding uh, recession. After the, the people scattered, they found out that the father of the groom uh, had passed away from being shot, and even the, the Serbian priest uh, was injured who officiated the wedding. Not only that, but this scenario triggered the Bosnian War. It's considered one of two scenarios that started a war, which if you know anything about that war, was a very bloody and violent war with over 100,000 people dead and 2 million people displaced from their homes. And it makes you wonder, how can you go from it being the most perfect and beautiful day of this young couple's life to things unraveling into disorder and chaos in just a day? Sometimes it feels like our world is like this, that no matter how much we try to plan and organize and be prepared, we get a steady stream of bad news day in and day out. I don't know about you, but rarely is it uh, do I turn off the news or scroll through my phone and think, wow, the world is trending upwards. It tends to be we receive a lot of bad news. We hear about the coronavirus. We hear about the mental health crisis and the opioid crisis and and these things that seem so daunting in the world. We receive a lot of bad news on a daily basis. And so the question I ask for us and I raise for us this morning is what do the people of Jesus have to offer a world that is hungry for something other than bad news. What can we bring about? What can we offer a world that's desperate for something good? Our, our scripture, our text this morning is a really interesting story because it's the only gospel miracle besides the, the death and resurrection. This is the only gospel miracle that is found in all four gospel narratives. And so another question we have to raise is what's so important about this story that every single gospel writer decided to put this in, that it was a non-negotiable. This story had to be in there if we are going to tell the account of Jesus, our Savior. Now, a little bit of context. We, uh, Pastor Joe spoke last week of this story. It comes right after uh, the, the story of John the Baptist being beheaded by King Herod. And um, a little account, this is in Matthew's uh, account, but uh, it mentions that the disciples um, tell Jesus of, this, of John's beheading. And John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin, 
And so the news, understandably, hits Jesus very hard. In fact, he says, let's go off to a solitary place. Let's go in the boat and rest and mourn together. But of course, with Jesus' reputation, it's not so easy to just get away from people. In fact, uh, as they're in the boat and traveling, the, the crowd of 5,000 men, which uh, scholars would suggest if you were to include the women and children in this number would be more like 12,000 people, are following them along the crowd. I don't know about you, but I feel like this is the, the workings of a horror movie for introverts, right? You're trying to escape and there's just hordes of people trying to be with you. And as they go, it says that the people uh, beat them to the place and await Jesus there. And so Jesus is faced with a choice. Does he turn the boat around and say, no thanks, we need to mourn, we need to rest, we've been working all day? Or does he stop and teach them and share with them? I think we get a picture of the character of Jesus here because in verse 34, it says, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began teaching them many things. And as I dug into this, uh, I realized that the word compassion here in the English language doesn't quite communicate Uh, the depth of feeling that Jesus has for this crowd. In fact, the word compassion in the Greek is, uh, is more of a graphic image. It's to have your insides turned upside down. It's to have literally your guts ripped out in love for a person. It's a graphic image, but this is the type of compassion that we see Jesus have all throughout the Gospels, that when he sees someone or people as sheep without a shepherd who need love, he has to act. He has to share with them. He has to heal them. And I think this raises a uh, a point and a question for us. The first realization we have to make is that Jesus never finds compassion inconvenient, right? So many times in the gospel stories, Jesus is on his way somewhere and then somebody cuts them off. Maybe it's children. Maybe uh, it's a person that touches his cloak. But often, over and over again, he is disrupted. But Jesus always responds, not in anger or frustration, but whatever his plans were, he he changes them. And he goes to those people. And in this case, even though they were going off to mourn, he stops and says, I need to teach them. I wonder as followers of Jesus today, how often do we not show compassion to others because it's inconvenient? How often um, do we sense that maybe we should help someone in need or do something or stop for that person on the side of the road or we get that phone call where we know it'd be a lot of work and we'd give up our free Saturday, but we choose not to do so because it's not built into our plans or our schedule. I think part of the call of a Christian today is to not see compassion as inconvenient, but to go where God has called us to go. And so this is in fact what Jesus does. 
He, he teaches with the crowd and he teaches uh, them for a long time. So long, in fact, that the disciples finally tap on his shoulder and they say, Jesus, it's getting dark. It's getting late. They haven't had food. We need to send them back to the village so that they can get some food. And Jesus here has a great response. It's, it's uh, just a short little response, but it, it's beautiful. He says, uh, no, why don't you give them something to eat? This is ludicrous, right? You've got 12,000 people in this, in this land, and he says, you give them something to eat. Now, the disciples, they respond with sarcasm. They say, are, are you serious? That would be like half a year's wages. This, this is like saying, that would be like a billion dollars. Because remember, the disciples, when they were preparing for their missionary journey, they were told, don't bring money, don't bring supplies, just bring a change of clothes, and that's it. So they get sarcastic with Jesus. And oftentimes, when people get sarcastic with Jesus, it, it doesn't go very well. So Jesus has a great response. Well, what do we have? What's our inventory? And uh, this wasn't in Mark's account, but uh, many of us uh, have a memory of our Sunday school days when the little boy with five loaves and two fish come up and, and the disciples bring the food to Jesus and they say, here, we've got five loaves and two fish. What are you gonna do with that? And for Jesus, he's like, that's all I need. And Jesus performs an extraordinary miracle. So what does Jesus do? Verse 39, Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. First glance, you've got this incredible miracle where Jesus feeds these 5,000 people. But I think if we dig into the story and a little bit of the context, there's an even greater reality that Jesus is presenting here. First of all, we have to understand the location in which they uh, were in. When uh, Mark mentions that they went to a solitary place, this is the same word that is used when Jesus is brought out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. You get a picture of a, a desert, of a lonely, of a wilderness, uh, desolate place. And so there in this desolate place, this lonely place, Jesus organizes this chaotic crowd in 50s and 100s, and where does he do it? He does it on a patch of green grass. I don't know if that caught any, any of you, but I remember reading this and being like, that's interesting, looking at the other gospel accounts. Mark's the only one that, that shares that little detail, and normally Mark, of all the gospel writers, is the most succinct and to the point. And yet he decides to throw in a little detail about the green grass in this desert place. I wonder if Mark perhaps is trying to spark our imaginations a little bit to remind us of some of the old passages like Psalm 23, where it says that the Lord will, will lead us uh, to the green pastures, where uh, Isaiah 40 says, I am making a way in the wilderness. 
that somehow in this desolate desert place, Jesus is going to take a chaotic group of people, feed them, and organize them amongst a pasture of green grass. But not only this, there is also another picture that begins to emerge from this story. And to help illustrate this, I don't know if any of you are familiar with this, but in my childhood, we loved these books called Magic Eye Books. Um, I don't know if you can see this, uh, or if anyone remembers these, but these books, you'd have kind of a nonsensical image on uh, a screen. You kind of got lines, and it's waving, it's kind of blurry. But what you would do is if you stared at it long enough, and you let your eyes kind of go cross-eyed and kind of brought it in and out, if you got to the right, right uh, distance, you would actually see a 3D image pop out of there. Does anyone remember these? Okay, a few of you, good. Not just me, okay? It's fun because you would gather around and one person would be like, oh, I can see it. And then another person would be like, oh, I can see it. And my older brother was always like, I can't see it. And, you know, would get all frustrated and we would tease him and everything. But we loved these books. Here's what I think might be going on, that in this scene... It's not just a a great miracle, but for those who could see it, there is a deeper reality that's emerging in this scene. You see, we have to remember uh, the context here. We got to remember the audience of this crowd. This crowd uh, was, was comprised of Jews. The Jews would have had a understanding of the Torah, understanding of the law, of the, the, the stories of the Old Testament, the promises of a coming king and a Messiah. And at this moment, as Jesus does this miracle, for those who are paying attention, this would be, this would bring about a flood of flashbacks. For those who who are paying attention, this would bring about all sorts of stories from the Old Testament. Let me, let me just explain a few. First of all, We've got the story of Moses. What did Moses do? Moses took the Israelites, the people, the, the God's people out to the wilderness. In the wilderness place, what did he do? He fed them the manna from heaven, the bread. But unlike the story of Moses, Jesus, who leads his people to a wilderness place and feeds them the bread, if you remember the manna, after uh, you would eat it, it would spoil on the next day. There was no surplus. In fact, those who tried to uh, hoard a surplus, there would be, it, would be, it would spoil. But in this story, there is a surplus. There's 12 basketfuls left over. Jesus, if you're looking for it and can see it, is the greater example of Moses in this story. You've got the story of the prophet Elisha. And this story is almost um, an an account for account, a replica of this story. In fact, there was uh, a servant comes to Elisha and says, there are a hundred men that need to be fed. But we only have 20 loaves of this rice barley bread. What what are we going to do? And so Elisha says, well, you know, the, the God's word says that um, there will be, they will be fed and there will be a surplus. And so what do they do? Uh, they, they distribute the bread to the hundred men. And of course, left over, there is an extra. Jesus, in this account, feeds the multitude, but it's a, a far greater multitude than Elisha's a hundred men. This is 12,000 men. If you're looking for it, you can see it. Jesus is the greater Elisha. You have the story of the prophet Elijah. This, this is, there's a little known story in which uh, Elijah is, goes to this widow at Zarephath. 
And in this story, the only thing to this widow's name is a little jar of olive oil. And in fact, this this widow is um, in such debt that she would need to sell her two sons into slavery. And so she goes to Elijah and says, what do I do? I need someone to save me out of this mess. So Elijah says, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to go to your neighbor's houses and collect empty jars, bring them home. So she does that, brings the jars home. And they take the olive oil together. They pour it into the jars. It fills up all of the jars. The olive oil is multiplied. She then distributes the jars back into the homes and is left with a surplus, a surplus that is great enough to sell her way out of debt and live on the remaining that she has. This story, scholars, they call it a kinsman redeemer story, which just means there's a male relative that helps a person that needs saving, that redeems someone who is in need of help. Can you see where this is going? Jesus, who multiplies the loaves, is not just the redeemer, not just feeding this group of 5,000, but is the relative, as it says in Hebrews, the brother that is going to bring redemption, not just for this people, but for the whole world. For those who can see it, there's a bigger picture that's coming There's a bigger picture that emerges. Jesus is saying, I'm not just a miracle worker. I'm not just here to fill your grumbling stomachs for a moment. I am the bread of life. And I have come to bring redemption and to satisfy you for eternity. I am the one who can bring order out of chaos, who can take a group of people and organize them into a green pasture. I am the one who can bring life from death. I am the king in waiting. You see, we live in a world where it seems like day after day after day we receive bad news and it can feel very daunting. What can I do about these things. And the good news is this. It's not us that needs to save the world, but there is one who has saved the world and is still putting it back together. And what is our task in this as Jesus is at work in the world? You feed them, right? To go, to take this bread of life that we have tasted and to share the hope of Jesus with a world that seems to be unraveling into chaos. I believe that the people of Jesus today ought to be people that bring about hope in the most desolate of places. I was reminded of this uh, this week as uh, my wife and I were um, admittedly a little stressed about our destroyed backyard. Our fence was in shambles. Uh, our plumber was like, yeah, that was one of the toughest jobs we had in like 20 years. I'm like, thanks, that makes us feel great. Um, we look at our backyard, we're like, what are we gonna do? We're never gonna have a clean backyard again. And we look outside and our almost four-year-old son, Dwayne, uh, we get this picture of him in the backyard there, yes, For three hours, Dwayne played on this mud pit. You see, when we were looking at this desolate backyard, for him, it wasn't the worst news in the world. For him, it was Disneyland. Right? He played, he has played in that backyard for three hours every single day. It's been a lot of bath time, all right, afterwards, but he has loved it. He has reminded us 
that perhaps we can have a different, um, different tune, we can sing a different song, we can uh, be a different people in the midst of dark and desolate places. Another example, um, after the war of, uh, the Bosnian war began, um, it was a brutal war. There was um, uh, the, the city of Sarajevo was um, bombarded with, with, with bombs and with snipers, and it was a beautiful city that was being um, really torn apart. There was, uh, in fact, a market, uh, like a bakery, where this group of people, about 22 people, were going to receive bread because the food source was lacking. A bomb went off in this, um, in this bakery, and all 22 people were killed. And there was an opera, uh, a cellist in the Sarajevo opera that was so moved by this incident. Uh, his name was Vidrin Smilovich, that he decided that he was going to try to contribute, try to uh, take a stand in this war. And so what he did is he got dressed up in his, uh, in his garb as if he were going to the opera. He took his cello and he planted it right in the middle of this bakery. You can see a picture here. And for 22 days, one for each one of the people that were killed. In the mi- this is not after the war. This is in the middle of the war. Sniper bullets are whizzing past. There are bombs exploding in the background. He played his cello for 22 days straight. And not only that, but afterwards, he continued to travel around town playing for the soldiers. And it, it was said afterwards that the, the soldiers and the people of Sarajevo came to him and said, this is what we needed. And when he was asked about it, he said, the only way I could confront the ugliness of this war was with the only weapon I had, my cello. In a world where we receive on a daily basis bad news, where sometimes we can feel overwhelmed by all the pain and evil and suffering and sin in the world, where we uh, get the phone call that the original diagnosis is, is actually, uh, it's actually worse than what we expected. We don't know how we're going to take care of this. We don't know how we're going to financially back this. When we um, are about to enter that board meeting where there's a lot of pessimism and we know it's going to feel a lot like a war zone, when we get the text from our spouse that the kids have just been crazy all day, that there's applesauce on the ceiling and toys are everywhere, and when you get home, I'm done. May we have the vision of a three-year-old on a pile of dirt or the vision of a cellist in the middle of a war zone. May we be able to sing a different song in this hopeless world a song about a God who can save and redeem us, a God who can bring about a people to in the desert place, can bring about green grass, a God who can bring even life out of death, a God who can fill our stomachs not just for a moment, but a God who is the bread of life and can satisfy us for eternity. I think it's fitting that this passage falls on a morning in which we take communion and we're reminded of the bread of life that's satisfied. We're reminded that the feast of our God is a far different feast than that of King Herod. That at Jesus' table, when Jesus is in charge of the meal, no one's going to leave hungry. But there we will find hope and love, and redemption in even the most desolate places of our lives.
Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you. You are the bringer of hope in a world that sometimes feels like it's a hopeless place. Lord, you never found compassion inconvenient, but that was the economy in which you went out and confronted the evil of this world. May we too go out in love and in the power of the Holy Spirit to speak a different word, to sing a different song, even in the most desolate and desert places. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the bread of life, the one that satisfies us. May we taste of you and see that you are good in this morning and be reminded once again that you will never leave nor forsake us, but you are with us until you return. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.